welcome. Pull up a seat, grab a cup, and get ready to share, listen, and learn. This is my favorite coffee story with your host, Aniko Samoji. You'll hear about the stories about coffee itself, the history, health benefits, recipes, and more, along with some personal stories inspired by coffee and the lifestyle. Now, here is Aniko Somoji. Welcome to My Favorite Coffee Story. We are so happy you joined us. Hello to all of you. We have a very special show today with an extremely special guest. Carolyn Miles has joined us today. She's president and CEO of Save the Children. And we're going to be sharing a lot of fun stories today. Um, I always love to give an update on what's going on at our coffee farm. And at Anikona Farm, we had a great week. We actually had a lot of guests come to the farm this week. We had a campfire evening uh, with the fun s'mores with guests from Seattle and Los Angeles. We have family visiting us this week, um, and we're so grateful to share all our coffee stories together. We also are getting ready for our harvest still. We've got a lot of nice red cherry coming out on the trees, but I just wanted you to know that we're live from Anikona Farm, and we're sharing favorite coffee stories, and we'd like to welcome our amazing guest, Carolyn Miles. We are so honored and delighted, Carolyn, you're with us. Thank you. Thank you, Aniko. It's great to be here. Thanks very much for having me. (laughs) Well, we thought what we might do is Save the Children is such an important organization, and we can't wait to learn more about it from you and also your mission and some of the stories that have woven through your life. We thought initially we might talk about some of your favorite coffee stories, a little bit about your personal journey and travels um, before you even started working with Save the Children. Sure. Well, um, coffee actually has uh, has been a key part of my life, given um, an experience that I had uh, while living in Asia. So I was there actually before Save the Children. I was working for American Express there. And um, as it turned out, one of my very good friends from Seattle uh, was there, Tom Near, and um, Tom decided, he was from a Seattle guy who decided that Hong Kong, which is where we were living, uh, needed a coffee store, a real coffee store. And at that point in time, in the early 90s, um, they didn't have one. So he started the first Pacific Coffee Company store. And um, after a couple years of working for American Express and having two of my kids, um, I decided to join Tom, and we expanded the company uh, and grew it to be actually quite a large organization, and um, now it's actually all across Asia uh, called Pacific Coffee Company. So I had many coffee moments (laughs) working with Pacific Coffee Company, Um, but that's been a key part of my life uh, and what really kind of... I think in some ways defined uh, my life and how I actually got to save the children, which we'll get to maybe later. Yes, yes, definitely. So as you were opening those stores, Carolyn, uh, how did you go about sort of identifying what maybe your second store might be, uh, the location, sure. et cetera? Well, you know, in in Hong Kong at the time, it was the early 90s, as I said, and um, it was a very expensive place uh, to be. So the most important thing, actually, about the store location was 
could we get enough people to come in and buy coffee and uh, pay the rent? So you needed to be in a really high traffic area. The rents were incredibly high at that time in Hong Kong. And so we were looking first for traffic, people walking by, literally, the number of people that walked by. And one of the things we did was stand out on the corner and count people with a little counter to figure out what the traffic pattern was like. And then the other thing we were looking for is people who actually, uh, young people, young Chinese and, and, and expatriates as well, but we really wanted to introduce good coffee, really good coffee to um, young Chinese. And many of them had been educated in the West. They knew something about coffee. They drank more coffee maybe than they did tea, and they were working for these large uh, companies. So we were looking for a location where we had a lot of traffic and we had a lot of young Chinese potential customers, and that's really how we decided um, where to put our next shop, and that proved to be a, a successful formula. So that's the one we used in expanding in Hong Kong. Definitely, definitely. Would you say that, um, you know, Starbucks has a certain vibe? What was Mm -hmm. the vibe of Pacific Coffee, if you were to summarize that? Sure. Well, I think it was, um, in some ways, it it was like Starbucks in that the the concept was about giving people a place to um, go in and sit down and meet with friends and enjoy coffee and enjoy you know, socializing. And at that point in Hong Kong, there were kind of two options. Um, you either went to a restaurant, uh, usually a fairly expensive restaurant, you sat down and you had a meal um, and you, you know, you had a drink or there were fast food restaurants and you literally stood up and ate something fast and went on your way. There was nothing in between. And so a part of the concept, big part of the concept, and I think what made it successful was you had a place to go outside of the office or outside of your home and you had a place where you could go and sit down and actually have a nice drink, have a good coffee, have a snack um, and socialize with your friends, maybe read the paper, if you know, if if you didn't, if you weren't with anyone, but really that um, idea of having a place to be. So that was really key to the to the concept. And so we gave a lot of space to people actually having places to sit and a lot of seating. And so that was important. Um, and then having really great coffee. I mean, that was that was key. And Tom, being from Seattle, you know, really knew a lot about coffee. And so we sourced um, really good coffee and we trained our baristas and really tried to serve a fantastic cup of coffee. So I would say it was the quality of the coffee and the ability to sit and socialize. Those were the most important things. Um, And the vibe was, I would say, a little more casual than Starbucks. Um, So it was not quite as maybe as polished, I guess, um, a little funkier uh, than than Starbucks Hmm. was, but very professional and everything ran very professionally. It was just maybe a little more casual in terms of the feel of it. Well, it sounds like you definitely provided a wonderful environment for people to come and meet and chat and and share stories uh, over yep. a good cup of coffee. So, Tom Nair, did he source coffee from various parts of the world? Uh, it sounds he, like you had delicious coffee. He did. He had great coffee. Initially, his coffee came from Seattle. So when we were just starting up, um, he was getting his coffee from Seattle. And after that, he was sourcing coffee from 
uh, buyers and roasters. We didn't roast our own coffee initially. Um, tried doing that a little later, but um, really found that the best thing was to find the best buyers and the best roasters. And yes, the coffee was from all over the world with, I would say, maybe a slight um, bias towards Asian coffee. So I would say more of our coffee probably came from that region than we had great Ethiopian coffee and great Kenyan coffee and uh, other coffee, but Sumatran coffee and, and coffee from the Pacific, um, Asia Pacific was, was probably a little bit higher in terms of the volume of coffee that we had. Would, would you say, what is your favorite coffee, Carolyn? Oh my, um, I love Sumatran coffee. I have to say that is a wonderful coffee and um, I drink it. I, I drink that a lot, although I travel a lot to Ethiopia and I also always bring back Ethiopian coffee, um, which I also really like. So both of those, those are kind of maybe I can't really pick. I think it's both of those. Oh, those are delicious. By chance, were you ever on some of those trips with Dr. Bob Arnott and Ethiopian trips? I was not with Bob, Dr. Bob, but we certainly uh, we certainly went on some to the, some of the same places. So I didn't actually go on any trips with Dr. Bob, but he was a a great traveler and a great adventurer, and and did a lot of trips with Save the Children, a lot of travel with Save the Children. Definitely. Would by chance, uh, I know you attended Darden MBA program mm-hmm. at the University of Virginia. What a fantastic school that is. And I know Darden has a tradition where they have first coffee every yeah. morning. That's and right. Which is a really nice time for everyone to get together and sort of start out the day together. Tell us a little bit more about first coffee at Darden. Sure. Well, it's a tradition at the business school um, at UVA where um, in the morning, it's usually, it's between your kind of first and second class. So usually you have a class around eight and then another one around 1030. And that kind of 10 10 to 1030 period um, is first coffee and everybody meets in one place and there's free coffee which is great for students um, because you never have any money. And so free coffee is always good. And it's professors, it's um, students, it's administrators, it's the dean. So it's basically, the, it's the you know, HR people, the recruiters, it's basically everybody who works at the school um, comes uh, together uh, for first coffee every morning. And so it's really a wonderful tradition. It's one of the things that I remember when I looked at Darden and I was looking at all sorts of business schools and I thought, you know, this is a great tradition and it really, um, you know, it gives you an opportunity to talk to professors in a much more casual setting, for example, you know, than in the classroom. Um, you get to run into people who are not in your section, you know, uh, students are in sections and if you're not in the same section, you a lot of times don't see each other because you're not in the same classes. So it gives you a chance to see your friends that might be in other sections and just a relaxing time. You know, sometimes there'll be announcements and the dean will, you know, talk for a few minutes or there'll be awards for students or there'll be something funny that, you know, that they, that they do. But it's just mostly it's just a relaxing time for the whole school to get together. Um, great tradition. That is a wonderful tradition. I, I know that you, um, you met your, your nice husband also at Darden. Mm-hmm. Um, but it sounds like you may have not met at First Coffee. It's possible you have met in a different way. Would you like to share that? 
Sure. Well, we actually, we met on the first day, and there was another tradition at Darden that was um, on the first day uh, for the first years, they would come a couple days early to try to get to know each other, and um, they used to pull up a truck, a big truck with beer taps on it, and I met my husband at the beer tap. So not at first coffee, but at the beer tap. So. And uh, and we got married our second year of Darden. We got engaged and got married the next summer. So, which is which is fantastic. Did you you then traveled together to Hong Kong and made that a decision together that you would move to Hong Kong? We did. We um, so we both worked for a couple of years in New York. I was working for American Express, and he was working for Citibank at the time. And. Um, Amex had a program where they uh, they didn't really tell you they picked uh, five people to go out internationally um, into one of their international locations and they didn't really tell you where they were going to go they just said did you want were you interested in going internationally with American Express and um, and I said yes but I think I should go talk to my husband and so I did and I said to Brendan which you know, do you, would you like to go internationally with American Express? And he said, well, like to where? And I said, well, I don't know. And he said, okay. So, um, so we ended up in Hong Kong, which was a fantastic place to be. Um, really a great city. Very exciting. Very um, dynamic. Um, similar to New York, I would say, in terms of the dynamism of the city. Um, and lots of people from all over the world. So we had a, a fantastic experience there. It sounds like it. So with Pacific Coffee and growing the various stores, at what point did you decide that you've grown the business enough, the coffee business has been successful, and then at what point did that get sold to someone or how did that go? Yeah, so that was actually a couple of years after I left. Um, and I had left Pacific Coffee and, and joined Save the Children. Um, and it was about five or six years after that um, that Tom decided to say, and at that point, the business was much larger. Um, I think at that point, we had about 30 stores. Um, and Tom really wanted to take it to China. And we had a hard time finding the investment. This was the late, this was the late 90s. Um, early 2000s, and Starbucks had come to to Hong Kong by then, so there's lots more competition, and um, we were looking for funding to uh, take this take the company to China. Couldn't find the funding, and so, so ended up selling the company to a Chinese investor who immediately took it to China, and um, and expanded it. Uh, now, of course, there's stores all over China. If you go to China, you'll see Pacific Coffee um, all over Shanghai and Beijing and I think in a couple of other, Chengdu um, and a couple of other cities now in, in China. So it was a very um, successful uh, expansion, but we had sold the business by then. So, Well, it, it does sound like it was a really successful business. Uh, business and the the strategy to find the exact locations and allowing people to, you know, enjoy, you know, reading the paper or having a meeting, a place to be, sounds like it was a great strategy that you and Tom came up with. So in, in, in your, all your Asian times and looking at the different stores, where would you say was maybe your favorite, one of your favorite places to visit during that time in Hong Kong? 
Um, well, I think my favorite store was probably, there were two actually that I really loved. One was a little shop, um, but it still had seating, in the Star Ferry. And that was the ferry that goes across from the Hong Kong side across the harbor to the Kowloon side. And it's a working ferry. Hundreds and hundreds of people take this ferry every day. It costs, I think at the time, like a quarter um, Hong Kong in Hong Kong currency. And it um, really hundreds of people would go back and forth because many people lived on the Kowloon side, but they worked on the Hong Kong side and and some vice versa. So we had a little shop there and it was super busy, um, always buzzing, always going. There were, you know, probably just four or five chairs and a counter because the space was pretty small and a little table and chairs in the corner. Um, But there was always people there. And of course, we sold a lot of coffee that got drunk then on the on the ferry in that case um, but that was one of my favorite stores and then the, the other store was the one that was um, in Pacific Place which is a huge shopping mall in Hong Kong you have lots of shopping malls in Hong Kong because it's really hot and um, so shopping inside is is definitely what you have to do so lots of lots of shopping malls and this one was a nice one and um, there was a big store uh, right above the shopping mall and that one had huge space and lots of seating and we um, served a lot of food in that particular location and that was a one where you just had many many young people particularly coming in and hanging out and um, you know socializing so that was a great store and it had great music and so those were they're they were quite different, but um, those were probably two of my favorites. Well, they sound really special. We um, can't wait to hear more, Carolyn, about how you joined Save the Children. Um, I think you mentioned that was in 1988. and. Yes. We can't wait to talk more about that when we come back from break. We're with Carolyn Miles, President and CEO of Save the Children. Thank you so much for joining us, listeners, and please come back. We've got a lot to talk about Save the Children. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. My favorite coffee story is brought to you by Anikona Farm, where every bean we grow represents a great story somewhere in the world. When you buy coffee from Anikona Farm, you're investing in new memories, stories, and experiences. We harvest our beans with your future story in our heart. So, from our heart to yours, enjoy the Anikona experience. May your coffee story be as rich and delicious as our Kona coffee with love. Please visit Anikona.com and get your Anikona Story coffee special today. What if there was a radio show that could demonstrate how we can cut your taxes in half without diminishing needed government services? One that could explain how to create tens of millions of jobs at no cost to taxpayers, as well as fantastic yet easily affordable health care. Side effects include cutting crime rates nationwide, providing better education for our children, international peace and harmony, and protecting your private personal data from government intrusion. Tune in to Libertarians Working for you with Arvind Vora, Tuesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Variety. 
Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. listening to my favorite coffee story with Aniko Samoji. Drop us a line and share your story. Our email address is orders at anikona.com. Again, that's orders at anikona.com. Now, back to this week's show. Welcome back to My Favorite Coffee Story, and we are sharing incredible stories with our special guest, Carolyn Miles, President and CEO of Save the Children. Carolyn, thank you, and thank you to our listeners for joining us again. Carolyn, you, um, as President and CEO of Save the Children, uh, it's it's been an amazing experience that you've actually double the number of children, at least double the number of children reached yeah. in terms of nutrition, education. Uh, we can't wait to hear more about that. Please tell us how you started in 1988 and how you've kind of taken the organization uh, to this point. Sure. Well, it was actually 1998. Um, and 1998, okay. Yeah, so a little bit, little bit later. Um, but the, I guess the seeds of coming to Save the Children actually um, was in my time in Asia. So while we were there and I was working for uh, Pacific Coffee Company and American Express, um, we traveled a lot. We actually had two of our, I have three children and we had two of them while we were in Hong Kong. And so we took the opportunity to travel all, all across Asia um, with, our, with our two very small at that point kids. And, you know, I found when you're traveling with little kids, you just meet people everywhere um, with children. And so I think one of the things that so struck me about our travels was the difference um, between the opportunities that my children had uh, to, you know, boys that were born to very well-educated by global standards, very well-educated, very well-off parents, um, and the opportunities that they would have versus the opportunities that the kids that I met would have. Um, the poverty in Asia in many parts of Asia is very stark. You meet families that really are living completely on the edge and have very, very little uh, for their children. And so it was those experience actu- experiences actually that led me to um, to actually, when I came back to the U.S. Uh, a couple years later, to want to work for a nonprofit. And I was lucky enough, actually through a Darden Connections, through my business school connections, to meet somebody who, who worked at, at Save the Children. And, um, and that, was, that was the beginning of uh, what's now been almost 20 years uh, with the organization. And fantastic organization that works in 120 countries around the world, uh, as you said, on health, education, and protecting kids from harm. And I am completely passionate about the, the mission of, of Save the Children, and it's been a you know, real privilege to work uh, with the organization for, as I said, the past 20 years. Well, you've made such 
a difference. And I'm I'm curious when when you're leading this incredible organization that has resources over a billion dollars, and every year you're fundraising. How do you develop your priority initiatives for Save the Children? Sure. Well, you know, we put together a, a strategy, um, but there are these three key areas. What really guides us, I would say, is, you know, this idea that every child, no matter where they live and no matter, you know, what their background is, that every child deserves a very, you know, a, a basic, uh, first of all, they uh, they deserve to survive. So they, they deserve basic health. They deserved a basic education, and they should be protected from harm. And that actually goes back to the founding of Save the Children, which was um, the organization was founded almost 100 years ago in 1919. We're going to celebrate 100 years in 2019. And it was founded by a woman, which was quite unusual at that point in time. And she had these basic beliefs that um, children had rights. And in 1919, that was a completely, you know, crazy idea that children would have rights. Women didn't have the right to vote. Um, She herself couldn't drive a car. She wasn't able to own a bank account. So, you know, the idea that children had rights was really radical for that time. And most kids were either, most children were working by the age of 10 or 11. Um, and if they weren't working, they were um, probably came from a very wealthy family and they were spending all of their time, you know, kind of being educated and taken care of by lots of people uh, and pampered, frankly. So the idea that kids actually had rights in 1919 was a truly radical idea. And her, the woman's name was Eglantine Jeb, and she founded this organization based on, on that idea. And to this day... The organization is founded on that idea, that children have those three rights. They have the right to health, they have the right to education, and they have the right to be protected from from harm. So a lot of our priorities really stem from those those three ideas. And um, in the past couple of years, we've we've said what we've really tried to vision, what do we want the world to look like in the next 30 years uh, for kids, uh, in the next 15 years, excuse me, by 2030. And we have three goals that really guide all of our work. One is we want children to, um, back to that health objective, we want no child to die of preventable diseases. And there are about six, about five and a half million kids that die every year of completely preventable things. So malaria, uh, diarrhea, um, pneumonia is a huge killer of kids, all things that can be um, can be treated and that kids don't have to die of. So that's our first goal. Our second goal is we want kids to survive, but we also want them to thrive. So we want every child to get into a basic uh, education, a high-quality basic education, starting when they are very young, so starting even with a preschool um, start. And we want every child to get through at least the fifth grade. And that, for a lot of the kids that we work with, that's considered educated. And then the third thing is we want to protect kids from harm. So that's where a lot of our emergency response work comes in and um, and also our work against violence against children. So trafficking, we want to stop trafficking of children. So if you look at those three goals over the next 15 years, um, that means we do some very specific things to 
you know, end pneumonia-killing kids, to really drive uh, governments and communities to put a high premium on on basic education and get kids into education, build schools, train teachers, and then protecting kids from, from violence, um, and particularly now refugee children. That's probably one of our biggest, uh, our biggest focuses this, at this point in time is, is making sure that refugee kids are protected. So, so that's kind of how we, you know, it started with this vision uh, of the organization on the basis of child rights, and it really is driven by those three, those three things that we want to accomplish. So important, Carolyn. Uh, so the refugee children right now that you're helping, are they, yep. uh, where, where are they actually fleeing from? If you could tell me, please. Sure. Well, there's actually a couple of different crises, but the biggest one is is the Syrian crisis, which is now, yeah, and that that's the one that um, there are now about um, five million children who are living outside Syria who are refugees, and they're living in and Syria is only a, a country of about 26 million people, so it's a large. There's about 10 million people displaced from Syria, and half of them are children. And so they are living um, in countries like Iraq, Lebanon, um, uh, um, Turkey, uh, uh, Egypt, um, Jordan, and that's where a lot of the refugees, the kids, are living with their families in refugee camps. And then, of course, some have made their way to other places like Germany and Sweden and Norway. But the majority of refugees from Syria are still living in the countries, the five countries that surround Syria. Um, and then inside Syria, we're working as well to try to protect refugee children, um, to just provide basic services, so basic medical services. You know, many of the hospitals there have been bombed and destroyed, but there are some that are still up and running, uh, trying to keep kids into school inside Syria and then get kids back into school when they leave Syria and they come to countries like Lebanon and Jordan and Iraq. So that's our biggest refugee program. Um, and as I said, we've been doing that work for over six years now uh, since the crisis in Syria started. And then recently, we've done a lot of work with refugees in Uganda um, who are South Sudanese um, children and families who have fled from the conflict and the drought that is hitting South Sudan. So there are a lot of refugees um, in Uganda. And then also, I was just in Kenya just a couple of weeks ago, and there are a lot of refugees from Somalia uh, living in Kenya who also have have fled a severe drought in, in that country. So there are refugees, you know, from other lesser conflicts and from smaller um, kind of natural disasters, but those are the big populations, the big groups of refugees that we're working with right now. So, and it's the, it's the most displaced, the hugest number of displaced people actually since World War II across the world. There's about 65 million people who are displaced from their homes right now. And a lot of it driven by Syria and then by these conflicts like South Sudan. Oh, that's a tremendous amount of people. 
uh, Save the Children has offices in some of these locations. So mm-hmm. it sounds many. like when many. So <laughs> uh, when you go and you team up with your team there, um, yeah. what an amazing effort that is. How do you stay safe? I know you're trying to protect children as well as families, but sure. the, the children. How do you stay safe and healthy during your trips and also protecting your staff, your team? Yeah. Yeah. Well, we do worry a lot about our staff because they work in really difficult circumstances. And and actually, sadly, uh, today, I just heard that one of our staff uh, is missing in the the huge uh, mudslide that happened in Sierra Leone yesterday. So he and his family are missing. So this is a Sadly, it's a common occurrence that our staff are injured or or go missing or are killed in natural disasters because of the places that we work. Um, but I have to tell you, they are some of the most amazing people that I've I, that I have had the the honor to meet. They are fantastic people. Almost all of our staff in the countries are from those countries. So when I go to Kenya. Almost all of our staff that are working in Kenya are Kenyans. Um, some Africans from other parts of other countries in Africa, but most all of them are from the country, that country. Um, and they are from even the regions where we work because what you want to do in terms of, of developing and implementing programs in these countries is you want people who know the country. You want people who know the language. You want people who know the culture. And so they really, um, you know, are the, are the real heroes, I would say, of Save the Children. And I, I honestly don't worry uh, about my safety much because um, the people on the ground do understand the risks and of course, you could be in the wrong place at the wrong time, but the vast majority of the time, they well, I'm always with people from our country offices, and they really know the countries. They know where to go, where not to go. Um, they, you know, if we were meant to go in a place that, you know, for whatever reason, either because of a natural disaster or because of conflict is going to be too dangerous, we just won't go there. And we'll go yes. to a different to a different place. And you know, it, when there's danger to our staff, we um, we we do work very hard to keep them safe. And you can't always do that. Sadly, we have staff every year that that die um, either in disasters or you know, or sometimes they're targeted, and that's a really sad thing. Um, but for the most part, uh, we, we are able to keep our staff safe. And as I said, they're the real heart of the organization. And the way that we are so successful, I think, in making a change for kids is, is through, through our amazing staff. So they're great people. Very great. And we're grateful to them as well as to you. And we hope the family in Sierra Leone will be safe and uh, yep. fine. Definitely. Um, I'm curious that there's so many rewarding elements of your job, but if you were to say, um, you know, what what are some of the really favorite rewarding things? Uh, and I could probably imagine, but yeah. how would you narrow it down? Because it's it's such an important thing that you're doing to help children. Sure. Well, I mean, I would say that by far the the most rewarding piece is to actually meet the children and the families that we are uh, working with and serving. And um, I think to just see how 
you know, amazing they they are and their lives are. I'll give you an example. Um, you know, just a couple of weeks ago, as I said, I was in Kenya. I was in northwest Kenya, and um, I was meeting with families there who are, and these families were not refugees. They were they were Kenyan families, but they are experiencing a one of the worst droughts that they, you know, they told me they could ever remember. It hasn't rained for like two years in this particular um, place, and they are nomadic, so they. They survive by taking herds of, they have goats and camels and sheep, and they move from place to place to feed, you know, so their animals can graze. And then every two months, they'll sell a few goats, and every, you know, six months, they'll sell a camel, and that's how they make a living and are able to feed their families and buy the things they need. And they live extremely simply. But when you have a drought, like what they're having now, um, the animals don't have enough to eat, they start to die. And the families have so little, um, you know, story. They, they don't have savings. They, they just really live um, year to year. And so they, they start to run out of food. And so a lot of the programs that we're doing now in this part of Kenya are about just the basics, keeping, making sure that children, especially malnourished children, are fed. And so we're running these feeding centers. Um, for kids and making sure that moms are getting some kind of support. A lot of times the the fathers are off trying to find food for the animals or they have gone into the cities to work and it's the moms and the kids that are in the countryside. So we're actually providing a lot of support um, to those to those families. So, But sitting down and just talking with them, and obviously it's through an interpreter most of the time, but just understanding their lives and how difficult their lives are, but how committed they are and how... Um, how, how uh, determined they are that their kids are going to have a, you know, a good life. And they are really amazing, uh, especially the mothers, I would tell you, are really amazing with the kinds of things they do. They, you know, this one mom that I met in Kenya, she had walked for two days with her child um, who was severely malnourished to bring them to this center. She had three or four children, three or four children back at home and um, she said, you know, I thought that, you know, this I could get this child to this center and I could save their life and that's what I was going to do. And, um, and the child was recovering and the child was going to be okay. But, you know, it just takes amazing perseverance for these families to get through this kind of um, uh, disaster crisis. And so I, I think those are the things that really inspire me the most. And... You know, when I'm in the office, you have a lot of office-type things to do, um, but you always think back on those families that you've met and think, okay, well, if we can, you know, just raise a few more dollars or if we can just, you know, get, tell a few more people about what's going on and get, you know, some more support and get people to be aware of what's going on, it, it can actually make a huge change. So, so I think for me, the most gratifying piece is, is going out and meeting the families, meeting the kids, meeting the mothers and the fathers um, that are living in really difficult circumstances, but also seeing what Save the Children can do to help them be able to help their, themselves. That's, that's, Defin- that's the definitely. best thing. 
Well, and we're going to talk a little bit more about meeting some of these families who actually grow coffee and their sustainability. Mm-hmm. We're yes, having we such an incredible chat with Carolyn Miles today, and we'll be right back after the break. Please join us again. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com My favorite coffee story is brought to you by Anikona Farm, where every bean we grow represents a great story somewhere in the world. When you buy coffee from Anikona Farm, you're investing in new memories, stories, and experiences. We harvest our beans with your future story in our heart. So, from our heart to yours, enjoy the Anikona experience. May your coffee story be as rich and delicious as our Kona coffee with love. Please visit Anikona.com and get your Anikona Story coffee special today. Voice America Network proudly presents the Catherine Zox Show for women, men, children, and families. Catherine magically combines her compassion, experience, and talent to bring listeners a show that's upbeat, informative, and yes, a little sassy. Tune in every Wednesday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern to the Catherine Zox Show on the Voice America channel. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. You are listening to my favorite coffee story with Aniko Samoji. Drop us a line and share your story. Our email address is orders at anikona.com. Again, that's orders at anikona.com. Now, back to this week's show. Welcome back to My Favorite Coffee Story. And we have, we're hearing amazing stories from Carolyn Miles, president and CEO of Save the Children. And we were just talking about the incredible efforts of Save the Children as an organization and the various initiatives and also meeting some of the children and, um, and seeing their, their mothers care for them and trying to give them nourishment. We, we were hoping we could chat a little bit more with you, Carolyn, about um, some of the coffee growing families that that um, are in Guatemala and some of the coffee yeah. sustainability, if you would, please. Sure. Well, we have done a lot of work in, in Guatemala with, um, with various coffee growing families there. And it's a big supplier of coffee, as I'm sure your listeners know, um, to, to many, many um, to many coffee companies, you know, the Starbucks and the and the Green Mountains, etc., um, and many others. And but it's also a country with the worst malnutrition rates in the Western Hemisphere. So there is a huge issue in Guatemala with um, children being stunted, which means they're they're basically you know way too small for their age and they're uh, way too light for their height. So. They truly are, are, are stunted, and you can see this in the families that you meet there. So one of the uh, programs that we have been working on for a long time there is working with coffee-growing families to try to combat stunting and malnutrition and also make sure that kids um, in coffee-growing families have the opportunity for education 
So the programs are really unique. Um, I visited there. I haven't been there for a couple, probably about two years, but the last time I was there, visited our um, goat breeding program, which sounds a little odd, but because uh, normally Save the Children doesn't do goat breeding. But in this case, what we were doing is what, working with coffee-growing families to have alternative for, um, forms of, of revenue in addition to coffee. And one of the things that we're doing is introducing a much um, a, a goat that produces much more milk in, in Guatemala. So we're actually producing, uh, bringing these goats in um, from other countries and providing them to coffee farmers to raise goats, and they can um, raise these goats and produce enough milk both to give their children, which is a huge um, uh, thing to combat malnutrition and stunting, and also to sell so that they have uh, during the, the lean season when they've sold all their, all their coffee, they have other crops that they can, um, other other uh, things that they can make a, make money from and, and produce income for the family. So it's been a really successful program, and I will never forget, I went to see a family in Guatemala, and we were meeting with them, and, and uh, the father was telling me about the GOAT program, and he introduced me to his two sons. And one was 10, and the other was 6. And the, but the 10 and the 6-year-old were exactly the same height. And the 6-year-old is the one who had been, who had been part of the GOAT program and had gotten the goat milk and of course the 10 year old had not and the 10 year old was very small for his age the six-year-old was a normal sized six-year-old um you know he probably would have even been considered maybe a you know medium height or even a little short you know in the united states but the 10 year old was the same height and that's what happens with stunting and so the thing that you don't see with stunting that is really maybe even more important is not just short children and underweight children, but stunting also has a great impact on brain development. So not getting the right nutrition, uh, particularly in those early years, there's a lot of work that's been done on the development of uh, young children's brains, especially between the ages of zero and three. And so much of brain development happens then. And if children don't, don't get the right nutrition, not only are their bodies stunted, but their brains are stunted. And they just don't do as well in school, and they will not be as successful in terms of learning. So it's one of those things where you, you, it, it really solves so many, so many different things. And the reason that we focus on coffee-growing families, particularly in Guatemala, is that you know, there is a lot of support from, from coffee companies to enable these families to continue to grow high-quality coffee. But in order to do that, um, they want their children to be educated. They want their children to get the right nutrition. They, and if that doesn't happen, these families will move into the city and they'll, they'll do something else. And so we've partnered with coffee companies in terms of supporting these programs. And there's a huge benefit to children. There's a huge benefit to families. And there's a benefit to the coffee industry as well. Oh, definitely. So the partnering aspect is a great way to foster relationships in these coffee growing communities and partnering with coffee companies or um, either foundations, etc. sounds like a really great way for Save the Children to um, pursue their initiatives and even do some of these goat breeding or, or coffee growing 
um, sustainability projects. How do you foster the relationships with the families and building that trust with them? Well, it's really, it's critically important. And, you know, none of the programs that we do will be successful if the families don't feel like those programs are theirs and that they actually own them. So I'll give you another example from Guatemala. Um, Another thing that we were doing is we were uh, building schools in these remote communities, coffee-growing communities, so that kids didn't have to walk. So, you know, otherwise kids were walking two and three hours uh, to get to school. And obviously little kids... You know, that was very difficult. It, and so kids would start school late and they would drop out of school. And, and it was it's very hard to keep kids into school when the distances are so far. So we built um, schools in those communities. and But then to make sure that those schools were actually owned by the communities, we actually have um, PTAs. Like, like we would have, you know, anywhere. But these PTAs really get involved and engaged in um, making sure the school is running. And so they will, we will train teachers. Um, the, the PTA actually hires the teacher. They make sure that the teacher actually comes to school. They make sure that the kids come to school. They go door to door when the kids are not coming to school. They make sure the kids get to school. Um, they get small budgets that they then get to use to keep uh, upkeep on the school, to you know, put in playgrounds or whatever things that they think are most important. And it really is their school then. Um, and then eventually what we try to do is make sure that these schools are connected to the government uh, school system. Because usually out in these rural areas, there, there are no schools. And so they start as schools that are owned by the community. And then we want to make sure that those are sustainable, those schools. And so we connect them to the government and then the government takes over the teacher training and they and continue to support the PTAs in these, in these schools. But you have to get the community involved. You have to get the community to feel like this is their school or this is their program or this is, these are their goats. And that, that's critically important because otherwise those programs won't last. They, when, you know, Save the Children has to move on to another community, that program will fall apart if somebody doesn't feel like it's their program and they can own it and they have a way to sustain it with ongoing funding or support. So really True. important. Very important. Um, it sounds like you've had great success in finding those people on the ground, hiring the right people. Your leadership yeah. has been really um noteworthy to other leaders that I know you also received the award in 2015 as being one of the 50 world's greatest leaders by Fortune magazine. And I can see why. Um, But if you could kindly share with our listeners some of those elements of leadership, like we kind of just talked about hiring the right people. But what would you say also is important in leadership and good leadership? Yeah, I I think for me, a big part of it is you, I I know it sounds a little bit trite, but um, walking the talk, I think, is is really important. And I think being there kind of side by side with your team, uh, especially in a crisis, especially when things get really tough and whether it's a natural disaster that we're responding to or, you know, a crisis where we had, you know, something happened that we weren't expecting and and you've got to jump in. It's always, I think, really important to be 
you know, side by side with your team and making sure that you're doing, you know, the hard work along with them. So I, I think that's super important. I think, um, you know, Save the Children is a huge organization. So there you've got to give people responsibility and let them take that responsibility and then, you know, make sure everybody knows what your expectations are and what they're accountable for. And um, one of the things that I have tried really to drive at Save the Children is measuring the impact that we have. Um, You know, frankly, sometimes nonprofits are not great at that and I think it's not good enough that we... You know, we do good things and we, uh, you know, work in difficult places. You actually have to measure the impact of what we do. So, you know, are we reducing the deaths of kids under five? Are we reducing the cases of pneumonia that are killing kids? Are we getting kids to stay in school longer? Are kids learning how to read in the programs that we do? Are they able to do basic math when they get to the fifth grade? Are we making sure that the trafficking numbers are going down in the places where we um, where we work. So it's really important, I think, to give people the responsibility and then make sure that they, you know, have a way to measure their success and keep keep people accountable for what that success looks like. Because at the end of the day, you know, what we're doing, the work that we're doing for children and for families is is really critically important. And um, we we need to make sure that we're also good stewards of the of the funding that we get from a whole variety of different people and use that to make to make change for kids. So those are I guess a couple of of things that that I think are important in terms of leadership. Thank you for sharing that. I think measuring efforts is so important. And a lot of times um, organizations like Save the Children, a lot of people say, well, how much of your overhead was did you actually have mm-hmm. and how much actually went to the cause? And I think it's probably true, like you've said, maybe that it's kind of what you've accomplished. I know you're, you're yeah. very good about your overhead in general, but you've done a lot to help millions of children and help them with their nourishment and their education, as well as reduce that number of children who who can maybe avoid, you know, some of those deaths. So yeah. that's, that's so exciting. So um, we're very, very grateful to you and to Save the Children for all that you do. And um, walking the talk is certainly something that I think is makes really a lot of sense. And um, how do you balance, and we're about to kind of close here, but just sure. maybe lastly, how would you balance like your home time with mm. Save the Children time? Um, how does that sure. work? How do you do that? Yeah, it's. I have to say, it's 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 definitely tough. I'm not a great um, uh, work life balance from a balance perspective. I'm I am better at kind of going full out when I'm working, and then you know, kind of getting away and and being on vacation or or not in the office and and unwinding that way. So um, I try to do that. I mean, I, I really do try to spend time with my family. One, you know, my two uh, boys are now older, but I have one 16-year-old that's still at home. So I am trying to be around as much as I can for her. And she just got her driver's permit. So we're <laughs> in that stage, <laughs> which is fun. Um, but, but trying to be there, I think, is important. Um, I do travel an awful lot. So, but, you know, now you have technology. I can do FaceTime from pretty much anywhere in the world at this point. Uh, cell phone coverage is great. 
So that that's a good way to stay in touch. But but it's hard. I think you have to, um, you know, you have to m- make sure that you do take that time out. And that's another thing that I really try to stress to our staff is that this is a uh, career that can, if you're not careful, it can really burn you out because it's so demanding and it's emotionally demanding in addition to just being physically demanding in terms of the places we go and the travel we do, um, that I think you've got to take time out uh, to reconnect with family and friends. And and we try to give people enough time to do that. And um, and so I think that's that's super important. Uh, to, to, Def- to definitely. And we're so thankful, Carolyn, that you took the time to share your stories with us. Um, our listeners, we're also grateful to to you and your team, all that you do. Uh, we've shared some amazing coffee stories. Uh, we learned about your leadership. We've learned about how your time in Hong Kong really made a difference in your life in terms of how you then took on the Save the Children mission. And I would say that you've really brought the Save the Children mission to life. You've made it come alive with children having rights. So yeah. thank you so much, Carolyn, for joining us today. And um, for our listeners, please, you're welcome to share any questions that you have um, at orders at anikona.com or on our website, My Favorite Coffee Story. We can continue the conversation. But thank you again, Carolyn. It's been a fascinating discussion, and we appreciate your time and sharing amazing stories. So thank you, Carolyn. And we look forward to seeing you all next week. And have a great, relaxing week in the meantime. Aloha. All the best. Thank you for taking an hour out of your busy week to join us on My Favorite Coffee Story. Please tune in again for another edition with your host, Aniko Samoji, next Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until then, we hope you'll have a relaxing week.